0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDIC. The podcast where
1: we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an
2: awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like
0: nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. (laughs)
1: As a man, I just, I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thanks for joining us for another episode. I'm really excited to bring you this one. I have to be honest, there's very few times where on the spot, a paradigm that I've held is changed. And in fact, this episode did just that. You know, many of us have heard this idea that Education's overrated. The formal education system as we know it is broken or not serving us properly. But our guest this week takes us down a little bit of a different path. Maybe it was just his message, the way he said it, how it resonated, but I felt it. So what is it? Well, this week we are talking with Brian Kaplan. And Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and a blogger at Econ Log. He is the author of three books, and the one we're talking about today is The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. For those of you that are avid readers or like this episode, he also has some other ones that are interesting. One is called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and the other is The Myth of the Rational Voter. So anyways, the focus of today's episode, as Brian explains, is that despite being immensely popular and immensely lucrative, education is grossly overrated. He argues that the primary function of education is not to enhance students' skills, but to certify their intelligence, work ethic, and conformity. In other words, signal the qualities of a good employee. And again, some of you listening to this episode might already understand or believe that. Some of you may not. But I think the the way he describes it, or the take, the spin he puts on it, and relates it to the cost to the average individual, the tax costs, the wasted spending, and of course, the opportunity costs. These are all things that, for me, I never really thought of. So tune in as Brian draws on the latest social science to explain why graduation is our society's top conformity signal and why even the most useless degrees can certify employability please reach out to us. We are at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, anything that's going on out there and be sure to sign up for a newsletter. I'm going to be actually sending one out soon with a, a really cool opportunity that I think ties in well with this episode. So you can go to smartpeoplepodcast.com right there on the home screen. You can sign up for our newsletter and we'll send you this opportunity right away. All right. So here we go. Our episode with Brian Kaplan, as we discuss his book, the Case Against Education. Enjoy.
2: All right, Brian. Well, first, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show.
3: My pleasure to be here.
2: I know you're about to hop on a plane, so you made some time for us. And I'm, I'm glad because, you know, we have a show based on knowledge and, and the accumulation of knowledge. And in today's world, the way we do that, the way we're told, is to go get an education. Yet, as a professor yourself, you're saying, don't do it. Tell us a little bit about where this idea of education being the enemy came from.
3: Uh, well, that's not quite right. The main thing that I push on is the idea that education isn't a good use of taxpayer dollars. It's very different from telling people individually that getting more education isn't a good idea. So these are uh, and, you know, It's easy to think these are practically the same thing, but really they're not. Uh, the heart of my book, is something called the signaling model of education, it just says that you know there's really two totally different ways why education might pay off for you in the labor market. One of them is the usual story where you go to school and you learn a bunch of useful stuff and then employers like you better. But another story is that you go to school, you learn a bunch of useless stuff, but in so doing you become you're impressive. You go and you get certification, you get stickers on your forehead, and then employers like you because you got the stickers right? And the main thing that I push on is that from taxpayers' point of view, it really matters why the education pays. Because if people are going to school to get useful skills, then taxpayers get to enjoy all the extra production. But if you're going to school in order to get stickers, well, stickers are not the kind of thing that can make a country overall rich. So, I mean, in terms of selfishly speaking, I said it doesn't make that much difference. Although, uh, since you are talking about people who really enjoy learning, uh, you know, there you know for someone who really actually wants to learn a lot you know then you know like you know, I say like you, know, it's, you know, it's the usual thing where what you get out of your education is what you put into it you can go to school and learn a lot of stuff if you if you're willing to apply yourself although if that's your main goal I do point out you don't really need to pay for it you can just go unofficially, and uh, I've never I've never known a professor that would actually prevent unofficial education to anyone in the world who wants it.
2: Wait, that's interesting. So by that you mean just go, show up to the class, and learn. And the only yeah. difference is you're pretty much you're not going to get the stickers.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, and and this is actually one of my favorite arguments for why signaling is so much more important than people think. Which is, look, if you think Princeton's the best school in the universe, just move to Princeton and start going to classes. I mean, the odds are the professor won't even notice that you don't belong there. But if you if you want to go and talk to him, go up and say, you know, I'm really interested in the subject. I'm not a real student here. I mean, almost all professors in my experience will be touched by this. And will say you know, like someone actually wants to learn what I have to teach. This has never happened before in my life. So I mean, you know, like if all the, uh, if all your, that you want out of your education is learning, great, but just go. You don't need anyone's permission. You don't need to pay a dime. That is amazing. I don't think I've
2: ever heard that really be stated, but I can imagine how true that is. And you know what I'm I'm getting instantly? Someone I know is a, is a professor that I, I talk with often, and they are kind of the ones that pointed out to me the struggles of teaching young adults, if you want to call them that, right? The 18 to yeah. 21 year olds. And now it, it took him kind of pointing it out to me. How little I, in fact, cared about education when I was in college. So, mm-hmm. do you did this come to you as a professor as you were teaching and realized, wow, no one here cares?
3: A little bit, but honestly, I've been thinking about this stuff since I was five years old. I mean, I've been in education for over forty years now, and again, from the earliest age, you know, there are all kinds of strange things about education that that I that I notice, just like they're making us learn all the stuff that we're never going to need to know again. But if I simply refuse and say I, this is a waste of my time, I was gonna get punished and it was gonna hold me back severely in life. And then of course looking around at the other kids, I'd always have a book in my hands and been reading all kinds of weird stuff. And the other kids had no interest in what I was talking about or what I was reading and couldn't help but notice that. And again, like the older I got, I mean I was kind of thinking, well, when kids get older, they'll catch up and then wow, like most people never actually are gonna read, you know, nonfiction for pleasure and so, you know, you, know, you know, it's true that, you know, being a professor did, you know, disabuse me of any lingering notion that if only I was in charge, then everyone would find it fascinating. But, you know, like it's really being a student that, uh, that this book draws on, you know, first and foremost.
2: There's a few things I want to touch on. One is the statement you said most people are never going to read nonfiction for pleasure. Do you feel like that is always a valid statement or is this purely a question of age and maturity?
3: Well, I mean, I just look around the world and I see that most people never do it. Uh, mm. that, you know, and, you know, like you like one of my one of the great lessons of psychology, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. If people have, have almost never done it in the past, then I don't think they're likely to start doing it in the future. I mean, it, it's conceivable that people will, ha- will turn over a new leaf, but, uh, you know, smart money says they won't. That's so interesting
2: because the, the reason this part fascinates me is probably selfish, but as I mentioned, so I was, th- this is what I was really excited to talk to you about. See, I was the amazing prototypical student, right? Like school was always mm-hmm. easy because I knew all I had to do was tell or give the teacher what they wanted. That's it. And yeah, sure. as soon as I realized that, you know, probably elementary school all the way through college, it was not about learning. However right around 25. And then this podcast started soon after everything changed for me. And I got extremely interested in everything. So now my bookshelf is literally chock full of hundreds and they're all nonfiction. In fact, I struggle to read anything that is fiction. And so it's, it's bizarre because, you know, we tend to think that how we act is how everyone is. And so you're shifting my paradigm a little bit, to be honest.
3: Yeah, me So, like, like that's, a, that's a fantastic story. I mean, it's kind of amazing. But, you know, out of most people who have never been interested in reading, like, like by the time they're 24, you know, that's the next year they're going to suddenly transform. You know, it's almost unheard of. But, uh, of course, it's the people who stand out that do interesting things, no doubt. Tell us about the
2: costs and really the economic system that's built up around education.
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, important to remember that for an economist, time is money. I mean, also for any any prudent person realizes that time is money. So, I mean, actually, most of the cost when you really add it up for especially college comes from lost earnings rather than tuition. You know, important thing to remember is that most people do not pay list price. So whatever tuition you see listed on the college website, most people do not actually pay that even at public schools. You know, upper middle class people probably are mostly paying that or their families are paying it. But most people out of pocket are paying paying a lot bit less, but there's still all, all, you know four years that you could have been working or actually in reality five or six years since people take so long to finish. Uh, so you know, those are those are the main costs overall. In terms of you know like of, of the economics of it, you know the the main thing that I say is that you know, it's very important to distinguish these two perspectives. You got the selfish point of view of the student and their family, and then you got the social point of view of the policymaker and the taxpayer. And really, the, the answers are quite different. So, so, you know, selfishly speaking, my view is that, you know, high school is a good deal for almost everybody and college is a good deal for people who did well in high school. Hmm. Right, again, you know, on average. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what, then I go on to say that from the taxpayer's point of view, though, investing in people's college is a waste for almost everybody. And, you know, even high school is very wasteful for a lot of people. Right, and again, the, you know, like why the difference? The difference is that, if you think that people are learning useful skills in school then they make more money but they're also producing more stuff you think the main thing you're doing is showing off and getting certification well if everybody gets certification it no longer certifies and then you need to get another certification so i mean one of the big things i talk about in the book is what's called credential inflation it's just the idea that nowadays you need more education to get the same job that your grandfather or your dad could have gotten with a lot less education Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah, so since around 1940, it looks like you need about three more years of education to get the, one of the same job. So, again, you, know, you know, so this is not talking about like IT jobs or anything like that, where you know, which is a little bit of what's going on. But the main thing is going on is just to be a waiter at a fancy restaurant. Now you need a college degree. Right. So, you know, crazy stuff like that. Right. And again, like if signaling is right, this makes a lot of sense, because once everybody gets a certain degree, then it no longer is very impressive. Right. So then you've gotta go get another degree in order to impress and another degree after that.
2: It's now expected it's, you have to have a college degree. And I kind of thought of it in terms of really evolution. So, all right, you know, my dad's era, if you got a degree, it really almost, I don't wanna say guaranteed kind of a safe, successful future, but it it was a good step. And then mine, it was obviously needed and thinking now, well, now you have to get a master's degree. And I, oh, yeah. I don't think I really ever saw the problem with that, except the time. Now that you're really talking about this, the time and the money. I yeah, mean, yeah. So, so here's the and thing. the tax dollars, right? And the tax dollars. So, do you have specific detail or numbers about the tax implications?
3: Uh, let's see. So, I mean, I just talk about the obvious stuff there. I like there's there's nothing too too amazing about it. But, you know, you know like so basically for for uh, for K through 12, taxpayers pay essentially 100 percent and, you know, for the public school anyway. And then for college, uh, they still pay they still pay most of it. So, I mean, t- tuition is a minority of the payment. So, you know, even at public schools, tuition's only a minority of it. Uh, you know, student loans, uh, you know, students are paying a bit, but those are subsidized interest rates. So taxpayers are picking up quite a bit of that. And then even for private university, private higher education, again, there's, there's heavy subsidies going both directly and then through student loan programs and things like that. So yeah, you know, it, it is, it is a major burden. So, again, you, know, you know, we're spending roughly a trillion dollars a year of tax dollars on education, right? And that, then that's an addition, of course, to private tuition and then all the time Right. And again, if this were time where the students were having we really enjoying themselves, savoring the knowledge, then that wouldn't be so bad. But, again, you know, as a professor, I can look out and see, look, these kids seem really bored and unhappy. So this is not does not seem to be time well spent from their point of view anyway. Let's start
2: young and then get all the way up to that college mm-hmm. age. At what age do you think or at what level should education stop being subsidized? Should it ever be something, kindergarten, where it is tax subsidized? Uh, is there a certain point you think, okay, now that this opportunity cost and, and real cost is, is overweighing the, the taxpayer and the time?
3: Right. Well, I'm philosophical enough to, uh, to 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 wonder about whether there's any reason for the government involvement in education at all. But mm-hmm. that's that's not integral to the argument. I mean, really, what I focus on in the argument is I begin at high school. I mean, that's that's really like you know, like economically speaking, you can't really study the stuff that's earlier in the U.S. because you know, essentially 100 percent of people go to at least ninth grade. Mm-hmm. So we got no variation. We don't really know what would happen if people did less. So I just don't worry about that. But I do start with high school, which Surprises people. People assume I'm only talking about college. And they say, well, of course, high school, all that is useful stuff. And I just look at them like, when were you last in high school? Or what high school did you go yeah. to? It's all useful stuff. You know, it looks like you know mostly filler to me. Yes, of course, yes, you do some literacy and numeracy. But then you know, like like all the hours where you're doing, you know, history, social studies, foreign language, higher mathematics, you know, Shakespeare, poetry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you know, like all you're doing, all this other stuff. That stuff hardly anyone is ever gonna use after the final exam, or at least after graduation. Uh so, yeah, I mean, you know, so, I mean, you know, seems seems like, you know, that there is just a you know, big waste of time that's going on from this early age. And and again, when I say waste of time, you know, what I'll say is, look, you know, if it, if you aren't going to use it later and you don't enjoy it, then I'll call it wasteful, mm. right? You got to have both, right? So, I mean, a lot of people interpret what I'm saying as, you know, like an, a Philistine economist who doesn't appreciate poetry. You know, I like poetry. I you know I like opera. I like this high culture. But I'll still say, look, you're not, you know, like hardly anyone ever gets a job with this stuff. And hardly anyone enjoys it. Mm -hmm. There's a few people enjoy it. But, you know, to go and pretend like 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 the students are savoring Shakespeare normally is just crazy. Well, and even
2: if they go on to enjoy it, most don't enjoy it at that age. And I think that's such a key factor. And what we enjoy changes so much.
3: Yeah, and you, and you may also kill their enjoyment by making them yeah. suffer through hearing barely, barely literate fellow students go, you know, oh, Romeo, oh, <laughs> Romeo. Like if people, that doesn't make you hate Shakespeare, what will? So let's move our way up
2: into, into college. What about the the argument you mentioned, this signaling thing, it's still real, right? Like it's mm-hmm. still real. If you want to go get, I think about my first job, right? If you want to go work in finance, you
3: have to have a college education, right? Yes. Preferably in physics or math.
2: Yeah. Either. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, so what do you say to the person or organization or or just anything that's like, look, I get this, but it's not how the world
3: works. Yeah. What I say is, look, you're absolutely right. And that's just what I say. Selfishly speaking, the system is like, like if you want it to, you know, like if you want to succeed in this society, you've got to go along with it. But, the key point is that for taxpayers to go and foster this system and subsidize it to, 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 you know, with hundreds of billions of dollars a year is crazy, right? So you know that's that's the key distinction now that you know that I that I emphasize is there's the selfish point of view where you say, look, we're stuck in this equilibrium. I better comply with it if I want to accomplish my goals, and there's the social point of view of why did taxpayers and policymakers choose to create this equilibrium? Why do we put so much money on the side of the status quo to make sure that things keep going the way they have for the last thousand years? And, he, and because it really is true that education is is amazingly similar over the course of the last thousand years. There's a painting of like some, like Thomas Aquinas' class or something like that. And it looks almost exactly like a modern classroom. There's the sage on the stage in the front. There's people going and taking notes, I think in wax because, you know, they they're they don't have paper at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like it's the same basic so the basic thing. It's totally recognizable. If you showed up there, you'd say, hey, it's a classroom. There's no big mystery about what's going on. And and so it's been, it's lasted for this enormous span of time. And yet, you know, like, what are people really learning? And what it was socially speaking, what is the point? So yeah, but you're like, you're absolutely right. You know, selfishly speaking, if someone comes to me and says, what should I do? Then like, well, like, have you, were you good in high school? Sure. Well then, yeah, this is the route to to take. you Mm. You can't, you can't unilaterally change the system. What about the social aspect,
2: that integration that, you know, the, well, you have to learn how to work in teams and you have to learn expectations and you have to learn responsibility. And we are kind of forcing that on you is all through school, but specifically for this discussion, starting in high school,
3: what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's a great point, and I agree with it. So it's, to, it's true that education builds social skills compared to sitting home alone playing video games or just going to the park and playing sports. So, you know, that, that one's less clear, but anyway, I usually focus on sitting home alone playing video <laughs> games. But the key thing is, you know, like, is that actually the relevant alternative? In you know, most societies throughout history, the relevant alternative would have been to get a job. And actually, there are plenty of countries, you know, like, like you know, like, like richer countries, you know, Germany, Germany, Switzerland, where kids that just don't like school very much when they're 13 or 14 or 15, they become apprentices and they actually get integrated in the workforce. And I say that, you know, that builds not not only does it, that build social skills, too, it builds better, more useful, more relevant social skills, uh, you know, because, again, so like, you know, there, there are a lot of similarities between the work ethic and the school ethic. Right. So, the, you know, like, yes, you, you have to show up on time for both school and work. You have to get along with people in both school and work. You have to go and follow orders in both school and work. But there's also a bunch of differences between the two. So like in, like in, in school, you know, people, people are judged much more on their attentions. In work, you're judged a lot more on your results. In school, it's very important that everything be fair to everybody. In work, it's more important that people just get with the program and get stuff done. So there's also these differences, and again, like I say, you know, like work is actually preparing you for real adult life to a much greater extent, where a school sort of fills you with, you know, gives you some useful you know, useful lessons, but also gives you this, you know, everyone's a beautiful and unique snowflake lesson, which is not a useful lesson. It's a dysfunctional lesson for real life. And then when we get to college. If you look at how little college students work these days seems to me a lot of what's going on is people build up their work ethic in high school and then lose it in college. Hmm. And then when you're done with college, then you get a job where they try to revive the work ethic that got messed up in in college because it's so easy.
2: I feel like you followed me around for my college and soon after college (laughs) career to some extent. But here's the thing. I will say, and I remember my, my dad saying this to me prior to going into college, it was the best time of my life. It's different because I was lucky enough to have uh my my dad pay for it. And so Yeah, that's I, important. Exactly. So I think let's make a very clear distinction. You're talking about the and by the way, I went to a state school. So so okay, it's not like I went somewhere where we're talking, you know, the norm of thirty, forty thousand a year. Right. Yeah. Um, sure. But your your primary argument is the person that's putting themselves in debt, the family that's taking everything they have to say, education is good for you, and the taxpayers that are subsidizing mm-hmm. it—that's the real issue here.
3: Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah especially the taxpayers. Like, like, you know, that, that's that's really a big deal. I mean, I would say that. Like, you know, like if the only thing that you were getting out of school were just a four-year party, I don't think very many people would do it because you know, like it's it's a pretty expensive party right. and and also you know like if like you know imagine that we had a society where you could get a good job when you were twenty years old, how much fun would that be? How much fun would it be to be a young person working with a bunch of other young people making good money? Hmm. right? You know, so you know, I mean, So here's the you know here's the thing like so like I mean obviously people a lot of people do enjoy their college years but I think they also have a lot of fun right out of college but when they finally get a job where they're where they're making good money and they're all you know they're they're still single and they're partying and they're hanging out and meeting with other young people it's not at all clear to me that the year that like the first couple of years after college are less fun for people than the than the than the years during college you know it's you know basically on the one hand. Uh, yeah, you've got, a, you've got more responsibility, but on the other hand, you got a lot more money and a lot more independence, and you don't have to go to your parents and suck up to them in order to get support from them. Right. So, again, imagine a society where you're going to start life four years earlier, and you could just have four more years of being a yuppie. Right. Uh, it's, right. it's, not, it's not at all clear to me that, 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 peep, that, that most people would find that a bad deal. I've heard this idea that
2: universities, their primary goal is actually research. And then when I looked into that, A lot of the research they do is extremely powerful. A lot of the things that come from universities, which are really subsidized by the education portion, are necessary, right? So somebody's going to have to pay for that, in my opinion, whether it be government or individuals who are there also learning from these brilliant people. Do you discuss that at all or have you ever really talked about that argument?
3: A little bit. So, you said mostly comes up when I'm looking into research on uh, the effect of education on long-run economic growth, and whether you know putting more money into education you know, you know uh, leads to there being you know, more you know, more researchers who are coming up with more ideas. And again, it's actually pretty hard to see that in the data. Hmm. You know, the simplest story is that when you go and put a lot of money into research, you siphon off a lot of people from private sector. who ...research with practical applications and put them into universities where there's a lot of vanity projects and just impractical stuff, and we're sort of split, sitting around hoping for spin-offs, but you know, often they don't come. I mean, in terms of you know, like, you know, the, the research value of universities, I guess there are a few things. So first of all, like, you know, uh, it's absolutely true that most of what professors at research universities do is research. I don't think taxpayers know this. My parents took mm-hmm. them about 10 years before I convinced them that the main thing I do is not teach, <laughs> right? So, you know, like for 10 years, they'd say, how's the teaching going? I said, well, really teaching is only about 10% of my time. And then, you know, like, what? How can that be? You're a professor. Yeah, well, what professors do is not really teach. Like, you know, it's a fig leaf that gets taxpayers to fund it is, I think, the best way of thinking about what's going on. If taxpayers didn't realize that, or, you know, taxpayers thought, realized that professors do very little teaching... I don't think there'd be very much support, public support for what's going on, and I think they'd say, look, if we're paying for this, then we want the professors to teach a full load of classes and let them go, you know, do this research on their own time. Uh, in terms of the value of the research, I think it you know, varies a lot by subject. I will say that you know, I think it's very hard to defend the social value of the research in the humanities I mean like like in terms of like how much contribution even to people who really love the humanities is going on from university research in the humanities I just don't see any noticeable thing happening there. I mean if you just take like the value of all Shakespeare on earth of all Shakespeare research on earth versus one Shakespeare play. I mean I don't see that you that any that anyone who loved no matter how much you love culture you could say that all that Shakespeare scholarship was better than one single Shakespeare play mm. or in fact one decent movie. Right? Like, like like, one one, nomina- one nomination for best picture. In terms of, of, uh, of social science research, I mean, there, so I am in the social sciences, you might think I'd be inclined to say, well, that's super important. Again, I don't see that there's that much of value that gets produced by it, especially because you know, like the best papers generally come from elite people and they would be researching with or without the government subsidies. So mostly what the government money does is just create thousands of extra, sort of you know, like, like minor league researchers. Uh, which of course I would be. I would be put in that minor league. The minor league's gonna have a the minor league's going have a few good people, but uh, you know, you know, yeah, but like, like you know, so you know, there's plenty of people like me who just do this stuff for free and in, in their spare time, uh, and you know, so it's worth pointing that out. Then when you get over to you know engineering, natural sciences, that's what I think you're really talking about. That's probably what people have in mind, you know, medical research, things like that. Again, for that stuff, you know, like it, it may be that government funding is encouraging more of this. Although you know, important to remember that. Uh, the government funding is also siphoning off people that would have been working in the private sector instead and maybe on projects that are more useful I mean I do know a bunch of smart people that have that have become professors where what they work on is of interest only to themselves like there's it's clear that it will never never actually yield any social value and if taxpayers hadn't created these jobs for them they might be in the private sector coming up with ideas that would be of, of value to mankind what about
2: this this idea that, Education is the cornerstone of society, and it's something that I believe cultures have prided themselves on over the past 100, 200 years, recognizing we are the more people we get educated, the more prosperous we are. Is this a recent phenomenon where we can finally step back and say the formal education process is broken due to technology, or is this something that's been coming for a long time?
3: Yeah, I think it's been coming for a long time. So there is a lot of research on the effect of education on the economy. And almost all the researchers who do do this research think they're going to find enormous benefits of education as soon as they check out the numbers. And like over the last 40 years or so, researchers have been shell-shocked because they keep looking at the numbers and they keep not finding the effects they think they're going to find. So in the book, I go and talk about a paper where they actually looked at eight different major data sets and tried to measure, you know, like if the education of a nation goes up by a year, how much richer does that nation get? And like, like, you like, know, like in every single one of one of these eight data sets, they found that that education is much less beneficial for society than it is for any one individual. So an individual gets more, gets a year of extra education, his income goes up by about ten percent on average. A country gets an extra year of average education of the workforce, and their income goes up by maybe two percent. Mm. So again, it's not that it's totally useless, but uh, just like the signaling story predicts, the benefits for the individual far exceed the benefits for society, right? And again, I think a lot, a lot of this again is that when you raise the education level of the whole society, you- the main thing that you cause is credential inflation. Employers just jack up the amount of education that they consider necessary to be worthy of job training, right? So, in a, so in a society, so you know, in a society where most people are high school dropouts, employers can't afford to say, "I'm throwing out all the applications from high school dropouts." On the other hand, when high school dropouts are just 20 percent, then, yeah, like throw them out. Let's go and focus on people Mm -hmm. with more credentials. So, you know, so, again, while education is a good way for an individual to enrich himself, it isn't a very good way for society to enrich itself. What about this idea
2: that it exposes people to things they probably because we talked about people are lazy They probably wouldn't have been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And then even later in life, perhaps they go back to that because they were exposed to it. And then it turns into a win for society in the terms of they become a CEO or, you know, they they create something of value for society. Is there any research there that shows that that's actually true?
3: Well, what I say is there's actually a huge body of research saying it's false. Mm. Uh, so you know, so you know, in educational psychology, they've been wondering for over a century about arguments like this, uh, you know, like starting back with the idea that if you study Latin, this will train your mind and build mental muscles, and then you'll be better at everything. So you know, the people in this area, they really want it to be true that if you, that if you study anything, it improves you at everything. Uh, But they've been doing experiments and other research on this for 100 years and at the end, again, they're shell-shocked and they say we can't really find these effects. It seems like the way to get better at X is to practice X. The way that you get – again, if you want to learn business, get a job in business and actually work in business and get experience of that. You don't go and study history and then sit around hoping that you're going to get a lesson from Gustav III of Sweden or something like that. It just doesn't work that way. The way that people improve at anything is by practicing that specific thing. Uh, in terms of the general goal, though, of exposing kids to lots of stuff, I think that's a great goal. Not because, you know, like like, like everything they're going to use is, gonna, or is likely to come up, but just to give them a tasting menu of things they might enjoy and be good at. Uh, the problem with existing education is that you give people a tasting menu where almost everything is, first of all, not going to be liked by the students. And second of all, it's not going to go anywhere because it's based upon a curriculum from centuries ago. So again, like I think what'd be really great is if you would go and expose people to twenty different kinds of tasks, all twenty of which often lead to employment mm. in something or other. Mm. Or you might say, how about exposing them to a bunch of things that a lot of people actually at least enjoy recreationally? So like why is you know, like like you know, like for example, like like I'm a huge fan of graphic novels. They are not taught in school generally. I think a lot of people would actually enjoy them if they were exposed to them at a younger age. So you know, like why not cut out a third of the poetry and give and give kids graphic novels instead and see whether they like those you know you just to really go and broaden people's horizons you know put a lot of items on the tasting menu instead of just continuing to force people force feed people the same stagnant list of stuff that they've been receiving since kindergarten
2: yeah and you know I'm sitting here really trying to poke holes but the thing that keeps coming back to me is even the arguments I want to make when I think to them aren't true so for example, I took a psychology class when I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. If I could go back, I would have majored in psychology. Now, why mm-hmm. do I yeah, want to be a psychologist? Subject. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I love it. It's it's fascinating. If I'm looking at a magazine rack, everything about the brain, the mind is where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Yet, I took a class and it didn't sway me in any way. Why? Well, is it the system? Is Was it my ability to be receptive? Was it just me being hungover? I don't know. But long story short, even if I believe that's the purpose, it didn't serve that purpose at that time. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So what you're doing is amazing, actually, because there are so many people who make that argument without ever trying to remember what their own experience was yeah. like. <laughs> much let much less go and take a look at the data. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it's be so. Here's the thing: so I like you know I love ideas and culture. This stuff is my life. I've always loved it from you know for as long as I can remember. So when I go and make fun of the teaching of history, I'm not making fun of the subject itself. I'm making fun of the idea of ramming it down the throats of a vast number of kids that have no interest in it, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing. Like you know, like you know, history is a, is a wonderful topic. It's fascinating to people that find it fascinating, mm-hmm. and and it is and it's disturbing to me that so many people don't find it interesting. But still, you have to face facts and say, look, like the actual historical education people receive, not only do they not enjoy it, but it leads to almost no knowledge of history by you know, by adulthood. So again, a lot of what I do in the book is, I you know, I, I try to, to look at what I'm tra- when I'm looking at how much people learn in school. Instead of doing the usual thing of like looking at how much do they know on the day of the final exam, I go and look at adults and say, look, these adults had several years of, of education history. What do they still know today? And again, like other than basic literacy and numeracy. Most of the subjects that people study in school, they know perhaps half of the very most elementary facts about the subject. Stuff that you might say it's unconceivable that, that everybody doesn't know at all, but that's not true. You know, so like what century was the Civil War? You know, I mean, Americans who had years of history, a lot of them will not be able to answer that question correctly. <laughs> so like what did the teaching actually do? Right? You can't just go and say it could do something great. You got to see what it actually does. And what it does is almost nothing. What is the
2: most powerful argument against your case that you've heard?
3: And how would you, if you can, address it? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, next week, I am uh, debating a famous education economist named Eric Kanyashek. Great. OK, and, that's and, what and I was yeah, going to ask
0: you. <laughs> yes.
3: And by coincidence, I'm getting to debate him. He happens to be in, t- in D.C. this semester, so it all worked out. But yeah, I'd say that his work is probably the stuff that was most intellectually challenging to what I'm saying. Uh, so, I mean, you know, just to start, so I mean, like, like you know, so Hennyashek, like, like if you if you read his work casually, you might think that he's saying almost the same thing as me because he has a lot of work on how just pouring more money into education has very little effect on learning. He has a lot of work on how really we just measure the wrong thing. We focus on inputs into education instead of actual uh, actual learning that is achieved, mm. right? So all that stuff makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but then he goes on to say that if we go and sort of just change the metric and we switch over from years of education to test scores, then he says that there are enormous social benefits of education, right? In particular, what he says, if you go and focus on especially like science and math scores, the benefit to society of raising society's math, uh, science and math scores is enormous, Right. So and, you know, he calculates, you know, like some incredible number, like many tens of trillions of dollars. If we could just get our math and science scores up by a few points, then this would be you know, be tremendously beneficial. Right. And, you know, he does have a lot of research on this, just showing that countries that are poor tend to have these bad math and science scores. Countries that are rich tend to have the high scores. Right. So. You know, looking at this, he says, look, if we basically he's saying, look, if we just make the education system do what it's supposed to do, Mm. namely teach, you know, like so like obviously literacy, but especially like numeracy and science, then it would actually really be as awesome as people imagine. Right now, he's still a a big critic of the existing system because, you know, he knows better than almost anyone that just sending people to school for more years doesn't have much effect on the stuff that really matters, namely, according to him, namely math and science scores. But Still, like, like, you know, when I am debate with him, I'm going to have to say, look, rather than going and doing these reforms, we should just we should just cut spending and stop trying so hard and have people start life earlier. And I know he's going to disagree with that. Uh, so, you know, what do I say in response to this? Uh, the main, So, you know, I say, you know, the main thing is just that, like, you know, his like, so, of course, all the stuff where we agree. Great. He's right. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> uh, but but but, uh, you know, this idea that if we could just get math and science scores up, it would it would be this this would be incredible. You know, like Midas touch, lead into gold. I just say, you know, like these results are just way too good to be true. And again, especially it just doesn't make sense that this could be true because most workers use little math on the job and almost no science. So we just say it just doesn't make sense that just improving science scores could lead, lead to massive raises in productivity throughout the whole economy when this stuff hardly ever comes up on the job. And I say what I think. What is really going on is that he's actually he thinks that he's measuring knowledge of math and science, but I think he's really measuring intelligence.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And intelligence is something where it is easy to see how higher intelligence overall could yield much better social results, right? So you know, like, like if just everyone could be smarter, like intelligence is something where it comes up again uh, like everything that you do. But just math and science, on the other hand, these are much more narrow skills. So I think he's just picking—you know—he's picking up intelligence and then he's mistaking it for math and science. Yeah. So and then the last point is it's just a lot harder to raise intelligence than it is to raise math and science scores. Math and science scores just practice math and science. Intelligence—you know—there is—you know—so it's not something that cannot be changed. You can change intelligence. You can improve it. There's a lot of research on this, but it's much harder than it would be just to teach people science.
2: Uh, Well, you hit on something here. So, first of all, how would you, in your research and and given your knowledge, how would you define intelligence? How is intelligence defined? And what are the things you've seen or
3: heard that we can do to improve it? Uh, Right. So, So, interesting question, because most people call themselves intelligence researchers well, we'll we'll give you an answer like intelligence is whatever intelligence test measure, which is a total cop out, right? Because say no, like like if that like it's not what it's it's not that. You know I think you know the like you know, probably the best definition of intelligence is learning ability, learning ability, ability to actually learn a new thing and to understand it. So I you mean know, that's the definition that I like best. Um, in ter- so in terms of you know what can we actually do to improve it? Um, so you know, like you. Know, I mean, like so like like out of all the things that you can do, uh, you know that we actually see I think the best thing that you can do is adopt a baby from the third world, and move them to the first world. So I you mean know, like like I'm very interested in immigration in general, and uh, if you go and read you know, and just you know read the research on what happens when you go and take a kid out of a third world orphanage when he's one day old and move him to Sweden, say uh, that yields a tremendous increase in intelligence. Wow. Even though it does not generally raise them to the Swedish average, but if you just compare what the kid's intelligence would have been back in his home country to what it is in Sweden, then it's it's an enormous gain. As to why it's not totally equal, it could be some kind of you know, prenatal uh, malnutrition stuff like that. So, you know, it's just like it's just an open question. Uh, but you know, there, there's an enormous gain for that. Uh, there's also quite a bit of sub-research on things like you know lead, uh, iodine, and salt. So again, you know, like you know, a lot of things like this in terms of nutrition. And then in term you know, in terms of you know, does education raise intelligence? There's a lot of research showing quite clearly that uh, you know spending more years in school does actually on average increase your IQ score. Uh, but there's a lot of questions about whether what that really means because a lot of IQ tests actually have questions about like where what what continent is Egypt stuff that you learn in school. <laughs> so uh, so so another so there's a big debate on on, on the question of are the, you know, like like are the games what what are called hollow gains? are they games where it's basically teaching the test? Yeah, I should say that if you just want to raise your IQ score, there is a great way of doing it, which is give people the answer key. all right? So <laughs> so I mean like like yeah, you know, and everyone will agree. Well, that's ridiculous. So that's totally hollow. But then how about you just give them test prep in the test, right? So you give them a five-week course uh, that teaches to the test that also will lead, will lead to a large gain in the score on that particular IQ test. But again, I think it's pretty hard to believe that that's a genuine improvement in intelligence that seems pretty bogus. And especially because if you, t- if you train people for one IQ test and then give them a totally different test, then you don't see the gains that you got from the training. So it really looks like you taught them very narrowly for that test. Sure. But I I mean, the
2: IQ test, you know, I I don't think really, especially given your definition of of, uh, intelligence, which I love, the ability to learn new things. I personally don't think the IQ test necessarily directly correlates to that anything well,
3: really, you... so you're, you're absolutely right but that's a really high standard right so necessarily directly correlates sure, oh. that, that, that nothing but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, like, right. like, like 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 yeah, yeah but that's but like out, out, of, out of all the tests that we have that we're going to use to predict how how easy it is to teach a person something iq tests seem to be the best so oh, wow. like the military okay. you know you know like the military uses this stuff to for example decide who's going to receive pilot training Why? Because they've done big experiments, as the military can do on human beings as no one else can, because you have no rights in the military, really. Uh, So, you know, like, they've done big experiments. So, like, out of all the things that we can use to predict success in training someone as a pilot, what predicts best? And, you know, like, usual conclusion is IQ tests, actually. Wow. Wow. Right? Now, again, like probably be even better if you would go and give them half of a half of a pilot training class and then see and and then use that to predict their success in the second half. That might be even better than intelligence. The problem is that to do that test, you've got to actually put a person in a freaking plane (laughs) (laughs) worth worth the 100 million bucks or whatever. So, again, like in terms of what's practical, where you don't want to actually uh, give the super expensive training and the really dangerous training to people who haven't are who you don't have a lot of confidence in. Yeah. So again, so, but like, so probably even better than IQ is like actual performance on the, on, on, on the task, mm. you know, like, like, but you know, again, you need the you know, task needs to be hard and that kind of stuff. But, but again, like if you're trying to decide how do we dole out training here, IQ is a really good way of doing it. And again, this is validated in the right way, namely you give them the paper and pencil test, and then you go and measure their pilot ability using purely pure pilot measures sure. or, you know, or, or like, or like if you're training someone to, to drive a tank. You know, like, you know, test one is the paper and pencil IQ test. Test two is we score how they did driving the tank through an obstacle course. Yeah. And the person scored doing the scoring the second test doesn't know the right IQ. And then you go and correlate it. And again, that, you know, th- these, these are, you know, again, like it's, this is the best we got. For, uh, you know, that, that is usable anyway. But again, it's not. Is it perfect? Of course not. Nothing in the real world is perfect. But is it you know—is like what's better? And that there's been very hard to find something better.
2: Really interesting. And we have just a few minutes left and I, I we've been touching on this throughout. But could you give us kind of your thesis for fixing this problem? Of education costs, the toll it's taking on society. And then how do we then take, say we were to cut it off in ninth grade or whatever, how do we actually foster that environment of creativity, learning, uh, you know, beneficial
3: individuals into the workforce, et cetera? Uh, So the main thing that I push is just cutting education spending. So people get less Uh, in terms of constructing a system that does great things. That's super hard. I don't know how to do that, and I don't. And I don't think that anybody actually does. Uh, so the main thing I focus on is saying, let's stop doing stuff that doesn't pay off, and then try to find something else. But you know, so and again, like the analogy that I gave is kind of gross, but I like it anyway. Is imagine that you've got toenail fungus and you're using a toenail fungus solution, and your friend comes and shows you conclusive proof that the toenail fungus solution you're using does not work. Mm-hmm. And then you say, all right, well, tell me how I can get rid of my toenail fungus. And he says, well, it's really hard and it's one of the hardest problems and like there's nothing that really works all that well. And then you say, well, until you show me something constructive that will solve my problem, I'm going to keep using the stuff that I've been using all along. That's crazy, right? Right? Yeah. Right? You know, look. If if like something is wasting money, just stop doing it forthwith, post haste. Mm-hmm. You don't need to wait around to know, to find something better to know this thing is actually is actually wasteful. And that is really the main thing that I push on education. Is look if it isn't paying, then let's just stop doing it, and then and then and then we can look around for something else. And that search may be hard. It may be that we spend a lot of years looking around, but at least we can say that we have saved ourselves an enormous amount of money that we can and time that we can use just to, uh, for the exploration and try other things. Uh, so now, I don't think that everyone should stop in ninth grade, uh, but I, you know, again, especially kids that just don't like academics at all, never have. Uh, you know, and you know, I think you know for them, I think it does make a lot more sense to switch them over to vocational education at you know at, at an age like that. Again, basically, once they don't need daycare anymore, and if they hate school then I think it makes sense to start training them for a job. And especially, you know, first thing is just expose them to a bunch of things and saying, what do you like? What are you good at? Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think you know, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, in terms of, you know, like, like how far can we go? Again, you know, like, like I realize that what I'm saying cuts against the grain of almost all modern societies. I realize that it's going to really bother people. And most people aren't going to want to do, you know, aren't going to want to listen at all. But, you know, like, you know, I see myself as a whistleblower and I see so much taxpayer money being wasted and so many miserable students being made to go and study something they're never going to use again. So, I mean, I, I feel like I ought to go and just, you know, at least call attention to all of this. In terms of what realistically could be done, you know, if we could cut education spending by one percent. Mm-hmm. I would be, I w- I would be Im- immensely gratified if, we're able to, if, if I were able to cause that. Mm. Just you know, very marginal changes, I think, would be a step in the right direction. And again, people start getting so nervous because well, then I wouldn't be able to afford my education. And my answer to that is that's possibly true. But here's the other thing. You wouldn't need it anymore, right? The fewer people go, the smaller the stigma against people who don't have a lot – and the easier it will be to just skip to your adult life in a uh, skip to your adult life years ahead of, years ahead of our current schedule. Right. So I do also talk about vocational education as suggesting, which I think is one particular kind of education where I think that if you, that if we take a look at the research, it is great, greatly undervalued. It's greatly undervalued just in, in terms of students' self-interest, uh, because you know I think you say there's good evidence that that at least a bit more vocational education would be useful preparation for adult life. But especially from taxpayers' point of view, I say it's just a lot better for taxpayers to encourage people to get more useful skills than it is to have them studying poetry and being miserable while they do it.
2: Yeah. Well, I think you've laid out a pretty fascinating argument for it very, very quickly. Does the is the irony at all lost on you that you're a teacher?
3: <laughs> um you know, like, here's the thing, like I said, I see myself as a whistleblower. Right. And if I were not someone with 40 years in the system, would people believe me? Would people take me seriously? That's point. I, I, I think it's vital that I be a professor. Otherwise, yeah. people say, you're just jealous that you're some guy writing a blog instead of teaching at a real school. That's a like, really yeah, like here, here I am. I've got this dream job for life. I don't have any complaints against the system personally. It's fantastic for me. If taxpayers want to keep throwing money at the system, all right, well, like I, I'm here. It's wonderful for me. But I do think that you ought to know that you're getting ripped off.
2: You know, Brian, this has been fascinating and I want to make sure to tell our listeners, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on this and I'll even pass them along to Brian. So be sure to email us, you know, the good and the bad because I could talk to you for hours about this. And and there's more questions to be asked, which leads me to you can get his book, right? And the book, The Case Against Education, why the education system is a waste of time and money, will go into everything we've talked about and more. Uh, Brian, I know you got a plane to catch, but I just wanted to a say, thank you. And B ask, is there anywhere else that, you know, you're, you're putting out these thoughts into the world, whether it be a blog or social that we can follow along and learn more.
3: Uh, sure. So, you know, I just want to mention, so yeah, the books on Amazon and it's down to 20 bucks. There's been a big price price last. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a small investment and, you know, it's generally considered well written. I'll say that. So uh, (laughs) if you, if you're going to read one book on education, read my book, you should, um, so in terms of you know, like other places you can get this stuff. So yeah, I blog for Econlog. I've been writing about this stuff for over you know, like for about ten years now. So you, know, you know, a lot of my thoughts go into the book, but the book does more than just pull together a bunch of blog posts. It really takes everything that I've ever read about the subject. I read maybe fifty thousand pages for uh, for, you know, for to write the book, maybe wow. even more than that. And you know, and again, the, like the way that I write is I just try to read everything everything that seems possibly relevant. I just try to read it all, bring it all together, and that's what I've done in this book. Uh, So, and you know, just thank you so much. This has been a great podcast. This is awesome.
2: Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a blast. This is this perfectly aligns with what we're here to do, which is which is learn, and that's why I think our audience will be really receptive, right? It's that group that really knows the breadth of knowledge is is useful when you're interested. So. Uh, I can't wait to hear the responses. Again, the book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Open my eyes. Brian, I just want to say thanks again for your time.
3: I mean, I'm going to say thank you. And just one other thing, I just want to point out that there are so many people like you that are providing all this great, high-quality education for people who really want it outside the university system. Mm. And I, you know, I just want to say my hat's off to you because you're, 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 you're doing great work. Thank you so much. I
2: really appreciate that
0: welcome back i hope you enjoyed that interview with brian kaplan brian's book the case against education why the education system is a waste of time and money can be found at your local bookstore and on amazon and as always if you decide to purchase through amazon please use the smart people podcast amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com amazon any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you and it greatly helps support the show If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check out all of the old shows over there and sign up for the newsletter. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, so we will see you all next episode.